the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I am Charles Peterson, and I'm sitting here with my two magnificent co-drinkers, Dr. Liam Johnson (laughs) and Dr. Richard Lee. So let's get some orders in. Lee, what are you having? Today I am going to have a scotch with one ice cube. Like Rick, I've bought into the whiskey industrial complex. I do believe that the <laughs> the touch of water opens up the taste. So yeah, that's what I'm going to have. So this week I am raving about end of the year lists. <laughs> You know, I used to do extended end of the year lists on my blog every year and I stopped doing it, but this is the time of year when people start putting those out. They're always really exciting. I like the retrospective looks on music, film, cultural events, politics, etc. So I'm really excited about seeing all of those. I am ranting, and this is, okay, so this is a complicated rant, but I'm going to say I am ranting about academic crowdsourcing. Let me just say that I do love academic Twitter. I love academics on the internet, but there is a not insignificant portion of academic Twitter and academic Facebook that crowdsources their goddamn homework for all the rest of us to do and it drives me crazy like i mean i do actually love seeing other people's syllabi and that is the great thing about academic internet right now is that you can see all these things but there are these people and you know who you are and we know who you are (laughs) that every single time you're teaching a new course you're like hey send me your syllabi on 19th century philosophy and i'm like you know do your damn homework right that's right up there with oh what books would you use for this? It's like, you know right, what? Right. Get up off your lazy ass. <laughs> right. right. But can you even imagine being in your first couple of years of teaching and having that resource? I mean, it, it's got to be great for untenured professors. But These it, kids but these it's, days, it's a, they have annoying. it great. When I was a kid, I had to write my own damn syllabus. <laughs> that is exactly why I hesitated in making this my rant this week, because it is a little bit of, you know, in my day. But anyway, that's my rant. Well, so I'm just back from Poland, and I'm a little out of time whack, and so I'm going to have a mimosa, because it feels morning-ish to me, and, (laughs) you know, it's not like I'm not going to drink, so I'll drink uh, a breakfast drink. That feels like you're slumming a little bit compared to what you normally order. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's on the low end for you, my friend. Yeah, I just barely unpacked, and so I didn't have all the accoutrement for my normal drinks. So you didn't ask me, but I'll tell you anyhow. My rant this week is related to what I just said. I hate time zones and time changes. I wish we didn't have to do it. It really messes with you. So at three in the morning, my body's like, hey, let's go. Here we go. Oh, yeah. So I'm ranting about time changes, let's say. And a related rave is I am raving about the program Global Entry. When I got off my airplane and I saw the line at Passport Control, 
my heart sank. And then I saw the sign that pointed me toward global entry and I sailed right through it. And as Charles said offline, you feel like you're breaking the law. Like (laughs) they just let me walk into this country. Come on. It was the best money I ever spent. I bow to the surveillance that I had to go through in order to get it. He's going to have totally different evaluation of that when he bumps into his robot doppelganger one day. (laughs) (laughs) Says Lee's robot doppelganger. (laughs) (laughs) So what about you, Charles? What are you drinking and what are you raving and ranting about? You know, I have run into... A weird, anachronistic criminal. Um, I know someone who runs rum from Canada. Oh. And so they have been bringing me back bottles of Havana Club dark rum. Nice. Ooh. So I would say it is the greatest rum on the planet. But because I have in-laws from Barbados, I am heavily policed in terms of my <laughs> rum appreciation. So I have to stick with Mount Gay being the greatest rum on the planet. But I'm going to have a very nice three or four fingers of Havana Club dark rum with a splash of eggnog for the season. This week's rant is having had to go through the oppressive pressure of thinking about and then finally buying Christmas gifts. It's just really wearing to, I don't know, pay attention to the people in your life that you love and (laughs) think about what they may want. Think about what makes them happy. I mean, I'm trying to spend my consciousness thinking about myself. And now once a year, someone intrudes upon my inner thoughts. So that bullshit, that's my rant. Christmas shopping for others. Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter. That's right. Merry- <laughs> <laughs> oh my, my rave is thinking back on the tremendous displays of humanity and kindness and support. <laughs> For the victims of the tornadoes in western Kentucky particular, but also the states of of Illinois and Missouri. Uh, A tragic accident. And I'm normally very grumpy about the state of of human behavior. And occasionally, unfortunately in tragedies, but occasionally I'm reminded of just how amazing human beings can be and how expansive in their concern for their fellow humans. So credit to everyone that, that took the time, that volunteered, that donated. They gave love and support to the people in these areas. So that's my rave. Sometimes people can be nice. Well, dear listeners, today we have a special guest on the pod, an old and dear friend of mine from graduate school, Dr. Jason Reed. <laughs> Representing philosophy from the University of Southern Maine. And Jason is going to be talking to us. But before he gets to his topic, Jason, what are you having? Well, I'm going to have a whiskey sour as a shout out to the Belmar and actually a shout out to Charles via the Belmar because this was the first drink that was ever poured for me as my drink. I went through a brief whiskey sour phase in grad school and I once walked in and the bartender had one set up for me before I even made it across the room to the bar. So as a kind of acknowledgement of that and as to Charles, because I know Charles used to hang out at the Belmar, although I think he was more of a downtown lounge guy. Yes, I was. But, but but the Belmar caught my attention occasionally. Yes. So that was one of the places the grad students drunk when we were in Binghamton, New York. Lovely Binghamton. So uh, my rant is Amazon. And specifically Amazon for keeping people 
at work. And the other corporations too. Amazon's one of the few in the area in Kentucky that kept people at work during a tornado and led to the senseless loss of life. My rave is, well, my rave is Christmas lights. Because it gets very dark here in Maine, right around four o'clock now, and we're not even at the solstice yet. And I depend upon those lights to keep me sane. I'm not a big Christmas person. I don't like the music. don't necessarily like a lot of the other factors of it. But the lights, the lights are necessary. And all power goes up to people who put them up and who keep them up until it starts getting bright. I mean, really keep those lights up February, March... Take them down then, because as long as it keeps getting dark before 8 o'clock, they are a necessary part of my well-being. Yeah, shout out to those people. There's a house around the corner from mine, and they have like the most incredible display of inflatables. There's a Christmas elephant that they have out front, and there's like a Mm. Christmas T-Rex, which I don't quite get. Charles, you don't remember back in the manger when the T-Rex was there with the lambs and... (laughs) (laughs) that's right because the t-rex brought the lump of coal (laughs) for the christ child all right jason you are a guest and you will be leading our conversation i'm gonna let you introduce our topic what are we talking about today well we are talking about the 2018 film by boots riley sorry to bother you and hopefully through that because it's an amazing film about work and the politics around work, talking about some of the issues that it raises, and it raises quite a few in a very entertaining way. To start out, we can just talk about the way the film opens with a very striking opening scene of a job interview in which we meet the main character, Cassius Green, played by Keith Stanfield, who it turns out is sort of fibbing his way through this job interview. He has brought in fabricated credentials and even some trophies. And the punchline of this is that when it's found out, because it turns out he's interviewing to someone who was a manager at the bank, he claims to have job experience. This does not <laughs> torpedo his interview at all. Uh, the person says to him, this shows me two things. One, you have initiative. And two, you can read. And that's all this job requires. <laughs> but I think there's something very interesting there that is worth talking about. And that is the way in which as jobs become more and more de-skilled, and the knowledge to do the job becomes something that you don't really need or can be picked up very quickly, there's this weird emphasis on the job interview as a kind of performance, like perform your willingness to work. And there's documentation of the way in which companies like Apple will have you like pitch a product and design poster boards for selling a product to get a job in an Apple store. And of course, you're never going to be called upon to do that. All of Apple's advertising is done by the corporation. You're never going to be handed some markers and say, put a sign up. You know, It's not like <laughs> that kind of store. But you do that to demonstrate your complete and utter dedication and willingness. There's a strange disconnect between what you're called upon to do in the job interview or what you're called upon to do in the job interview is really to show your passion. And that passion becomes more important than any skill, knowledge or anything else. So the film from the the get-go, I think, really shows how it's really thinking about some of the absurdities of modern work, that faking your way through a job interview could be the best way to get the job. That's a hilarious scene. 
But what I found really amazing about the scene is that all these things that Cassius Green, the Lakeith Stansfield character, is trying to hide from the erstwhile employer, all the things that he thinks will be a detriment to him being hired are exactly what gets him hired. Because it's not really just your initiative, but it's your willing to lie. It's your willing to deceive. Mm -hmm. How far (laughs) will you go to fool someone in order to reach your objective? Because you said he brought in the trophy. And I remember the manager saying, did you really win that trophy? And he's like, no, actually, I I had it made. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I just had this image of him walking from job interview to job interview with this trophy made just to get a job. So for our listener, Mom, we're going to spoil, probably spoil the film. I won't do that right now because I'm still talking about this opening scene. But I think to me, two things stuck out of that following up on what you, Jason, and Charles were both indicating. And one is that this is a telemarketing firm that he's about to join and he's going to have to cold call people and and sell them things. And so the skills that are required for that are skills clearly that can be taught on the job, but they're skills that don't involve things like honesty or (laughs) being genuine or not faking your way through it. And the second thing that struck me was, as you pointed out, Jason, this emphasis from early on in the movie that you have to love your work or really want to desire to be here. I was just listening to a podcast that had Sarah, is it Yaffe, Jaff? She has a new book called Work Won't Love You Back. And she was talking on the podcast and in the book about the development of this language of loving work. And it got me thinking that perhaps the category that was developed some years ago of emotional labor needs probably to be expanded because her argument in a way is that because of the nature of contemporary work, there is this affective demand placed on all of us that we love it. And that's really clear right in the opening scene of this movie. One of the things that I'm wondering, and I think this is probably going to come up a few times in our discussion, is how this film has aged. Because right now, as you all know, we're in the midst of what people are calling the great resignation, right? That the tables have turned and employers are really desperately trying to find anyone who will work. And I wonder, I mean, I don't know, I haven't been on a job interview in 16 years. But I wonder if that phenomenon is the same now. I wonder if this performance of the job interview, as Jason just described it, is still the case. I guess I'll just just sit here and wonder that myself. (laughs) This is me wondering. What the problem is, is that when was the last time any of us have been on a job interview? (laughs) (laughs) You got four tenured professors of philosophy. Picking up what Rick was saying, I do think that emotional labor, as was initially defined, was emotions performed for the customer, right? The the paradigmatic example was the flight attendant who performs a kind of cheerful, comforting presence, even as you go through turbulence and so on. And 
Many people have remarked that emotional labor seems to be now performed not just for the customer who has to see a smiling face, but for the employer who wants to see that you are constantly dedicated and passionate, even when there's no customer around, right? Even when you're in the back room and you could, you know, be pissed off or whatever. And I think it's interesting uh, picking up what Lee was saying about seeing this film now, because I watched it again last night and thinking about the great resignation and so on. And it was interesting that the slogan that comes up, and here's a spoiler alert for when they unionize and and work against the the company, is, fuck you, pay me. Oh, wait, can we swear? We can swear, right? Okay, fuck you, pay me, which... I would literally be just sitting here by myself on the podcast every week if we could swear. Okay, so... That's so fucking true. <laughs> I think it's an interesting slogan. It could be a slogan for the, the so-called great resignation, but it suggests that everything else you're offering me, like little pizza parties, perks, there's even lines in the movie about how you're building up your cultural capital. Everything else you're offering me is meaningless. Unless you're going to pay mm-hmm. me, everything else you're saying to me is not important. Or really an attempt to separate oneself from the emotional implication of the job. I'm not doing this for my well-being. I'm not doing this to feel good about myself. I'm doing this for money. Although at the same time, this is one of the things I think is really great about the film, is that Cassius, the main character, like it's also a story about a guy finding something that he's really good at. And I mean, on the one hand, he gets paid and he starts to get paid really well when he gets promoted to a power caller. But there's also repeatedly in the film, he's like, I finally found something that I'm good at. And that sense of identifying with his job, which ultimately alienates him from his friends and kind of destroys him. But it is something that is there. And I think that the film is smart to acknowledge that. When Lakeith Stanfield says, I need this job, he doesn't just mean he needs money. He clearly needs money. He's renting out his uncle's garage to live in. But there's a scene right after the job interview scene where he's talking about like, what is it I'm doing? He has this existential angst. What is it I'm doing even? And doesn't want to be stuck living out his glory days of high school and really wants to find some kind of purpose. And he finds that eventually is really good at this. And I think that kind of being tied into, and here's, you know, the the four of us here are probably not really good at talking about job interviews is clear because we haven't had one in a long time. (laughs) But I think the four of us are, are really good at maybe being able to talk about the issue of, I think we all in some sense love and identify a certain part of our job or certain aspects of our job. And to a certain extent, at least for me, that sometimes becomes the thing that chains me to it more than I would like to, because I do identify with it. I feel responsible for what I'm doing. And to go back to Sarah Jaffe's book, you know, she talks about various careers, teachers being one of them but also nurses, people in the nonprofit sector who are worked to death through their own passion, through their own passion for what they're doing. It forces them to work longer than they like to. And sometimes it's very useful to say, fuck you, pay me. To think a job is just a job, that you're doing this for money, that's what it is, and not to be seduced by finding purpose, meaning, and gratification in what you're doing. Well, that's one of the brilliant things, I think, about the movie it shows you the extremes in terms of relationships to labor. So you have the masses of cold callers in the office and, you know, they're unionizing. Fuck you, pay me. They're very observant of the degraded conditions of the office. You have to pay for a cup of coffee, all of these things. But at the same time, Cassius Green, Lakeith Stanfield's character, finds this ideal. He begins to find himself. He begins to realize what a real talent is. 
and is able to invest and in his own eyes become a better person, not only just for his own fulfillment, but in relationship to his family. He's able to pay off the uncle that he owes four months rent to and the uncle can keep the house. And he also says to his girlfriend, Detroit, I wanted the job because I wanted basically you to be proud of me. I wanted me to be someone you can rock with as opposed to who I was before that. Two quick things. One, just back on the job interviews really quickly, which is that even though none of us have been in a job interview in quite a long time, we write recommendation letters every year. And so we are in the interview in a way. And it occurs to me that even now I write recommendation letters with that same performance in mind, sort of co-performing with the student, that same kind of ethos. Or even pre-performing. Yeah, right. But the second thing that I wanted to say is, and Jason Reed has a book coming out on work. And so I'm going to ask him something that I'm pretty sure is a part of that book because I've read the introduction that you posted on your blog. But one of the things that you talked about there is how this ideology of work, where the workers feel alienated, feel exploited, feel humiliated and exhausted and all of those things, leaves out the fact that at the level of lived experience, work has a lot of different valences, that it is a source of the feeling of accomplishment, of pride. And you used that to show how the separation between, to use the old Marxian language, the ideological superstructure and the base of lived experience is not quite as cleanly separated as we sometimes like to think. I was wondering if you could just say a little bit more about that, because it does seem that in this opening scene, we're seeing that. Yeah. As you said, I think it'd be wrong to dismiss the way in which people do get real gratifications from work. And in fact, there's interesting sociological evidence point to the fact that people started to talk more about finding meaning and purpose in work as work hours increased. It's sort of a late 20th into the 21st century that for, for a long time, you don't see a lot of discussion of that's what people expected to find in work, purpose and meaning. They just wanted to get paid. And this sense of increased purpose and meaning in work, I think, is in some sense an effect of this is the only social existence you have. If people you talk to at work are the only people you get to talk to because the rest of the time you're too exhausted. And of course, it's going to be a, a place of meaning. So I think the, the intertwining of what I would consider to be some level of identification or some level of value from work and alienation, they're not like two separate things. They're not like right. there are some mm-hmm. workers who are alienated, even though there are some incredibly horrendous working conditions out there, and then there are those who identify with the work. I think that those two things coexist at the same time, and that's what makes it difficult to pull them apart because there are aspects of pleasure, gratification, of enjoying the people you spend time with, enjoying the sense of being able to do something and affect the world and transform the world. But that coexists with the alienation and the separation from your ability to act. In the film, I think this is illustrated quite brilliantly with the the white voice, that Cassius Green's success is given by the he's overdubbed I believe it's David Cross's voice. He's yeah, overdubbed. Is. And the overdubbing of this different voice begins to creep into his social life, too. He right. he finds himself speaking in that voice to his fiancée, to his friends, when he doesn't mean to. And it suggests an interesting transformation of alienation in the sense that when your job is emotional labor, 
relating to other people. What does it mean to be alienated from that? I mean, if your job was to say, go into a place and, and make cars all day, you could totally understand why at the end of the day, you'd want nothing to do with making cars or the kind of machinery you have to interact with. But if your job is talking to people and interacting with people and figuring out ways of expressing yourself that work for the company, well, when you're alienated from that, from that aspect of who you are, like how do you walk away from that or how do you separate yourself from that? You know, I, I, I teach a class on work and we cover emotional labor. And one of the things I say to my students is because a lot of my students, you know, they work in the service industry because Portland, Maine's a tourism town, with lots of food and so on, is what do you do at the end of the day of service work, of being emotional, being friendly, supportive and so on? And a lot of people say, I just, you know, I just want to be away from people. I don't know how to interact at the end of a day of working because I'm both turned on and I'm also kind of frustrated and alienated and tired of dealing with people. I have a cousin who is a carpenter and he is an incredible cabinet maker and furniture maker. He made, in fact, my dining room table. But when he goes to his job, he's not fine crafting molding on a custom made cabinet. He's like building stud wall after stud wall after stud wall and just cranking yeah. out these things that when the robots come, they can do, although <laughs> Lee will want them to be in the union also. <laughs> so he takes a tremendous amount of pride in his work, like my dining room table. I, I think he's not going to do a shitty job when he's at his job. But he doesn't walk away thinking, man, that was a beautiful wall I just did. I mean, there are small moments where there's a problem that arises. And because of his more than 30 years in as a union carpenter by now, certainly when he can solve a problem, he is sort of proud of that kind of work. But I mean, it is crushing him. And he, in fact, is retiring at the end of this month because the work is actually physically crushing him. And I, I think maybe in a certain way because of his skills, emotionally crushing him. And so I'm wondering, like, we talk about a work of art, and, and someone could take pride in that work. But then, as you point out, when I am alienated from the products of my own labor, and when the products of my own labor on top of that are sort of increased sociality and making social connections lubricated and thrive and so on, and I'm alienated from that... I become alienated not only from the products of my own labor, but I become alienated from other people as well. And then alienation is not just this technical term, but it also is just isolation. Yeah, I think this is really important. And when I teach marks to my students, when we're talking about alienated labor, often they'll say, but what if you love hmm. your job? And I say to my students, I genuinely do love my job. I would do it even if I wasn't getting paid for it. I would sit in a bar and I would talk to people about Marx, even if I we wasn't can all speak to the it. truth of that. <laughs> <laughs> but right now, I'm teaching you, Marx, not because I love it, but because I need to pay my rent and I've got to, you know, pay my insurance premiums and I want food and I need to keep my heat on, right? And so, even though I love my job. I still say, thank God it's Friday. I can't yeah. wait till happy hour. <laughs> when is the semester over? And so those two things, exactly as Jason said, can coexist. And I think that often our theoretical insistence on separating them 
really gives us a, a truly distorted picture of the actual experience of work. Hey, listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the hotel bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their all-fair thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation. Okay, we only covered the first scene, so where do we want to go from here? I was hoping we would do like a scene-by-scene exegesis. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. possible welcome back to part 14 of the welcome back to minute 15 and seven seconds i want to talk about a turning point and an important narrative device in the film jason mentioned it earlier which is cassius's discovery of the white voice Mm -hmm. you know he's a telecaller he's doing cold calls and what he's realizing as he starts to job is that once white people pick up the phone that he's calling and they realize that this is a black person speaking to them they immediately hang up And he can't make any sales. He can't make any money. And there's a scene where an older black man played by Danny Glover is sitting next to him and he hears his failure. And he says to him, young blood, let me give you some advice. Why don't you use your white voice? Now, I love this because he says white voice in such a familiar way where you know, as a black person, exactly what he's talking about. Right. You know that this is a voice one puts on if one has to call some type of corporation or institution or mainstream figure in order to convince them that the person they're talking with are reasonable, sane, whatever. And what I wanted to get to was how Danny Glover's character begins to explain to him what the voice should do. Mm -hmm. And he says, like, I'm not talking about a nasal voice, right? The the Richard Pryor type of imitating a white man voice. But then it says, you know, that voice where, you know, you don't have any problems. There's no trouble. Your bills are paid and you're about to get into the Ferrari. You don't have to really make this call, but you do. So I'm thinking all this translates into, he's saying, you need to sound free. That's Mm -hmm. your white voice. You need to sound like you're not under anybody's heel. And I wanted to talk about what all of that means. And it's also significant that he's told about this by a fellow worker. Right, Because I think a lot of people have experience in jobs when you're told what to do by your employer and you're maybe given a manual and everything else. But sooner or later, someone pulls you aside and says, hey, look, if you really want to get by here, the way they have you do it is going to be exhausting. It's going to take up way too much time. Here's some shortcuts I've figured out. Here's some things that are really going to help you out. There are two different sort of knowledges at work. There's the official knowledge of what the company wants you to do and how they want you to do it, or the stick to the script that they insist on. And the unofficial knowledge of how to do this voice turns out to be more useful for getting by than the script, which as much as they insist on, you don't really learn a lot about the script. In fact, when you do see the one scene of the script playing itself out, it's it's horrible. He's trying to take advantage of a woman whose husband is dying of cancer and trying to see that as a sales opportunity. And right. it's it's a horrible script. It is kind of forces one to separate oneself from what's doing it. And of course, the white voice does too, but it's an act that he can take on, whereas the script seems to be much more rigid and formal and imposed from the outside. But to pick up on one of the points Charles was making, 
to put together all of the things Danny Glover uses to explain this, like one of my favorite ones is you've never been fired from a job. Okay. Maybe you've been laid off, but you've never been fired. Right. right. And as Charles put it, like all of these are about uh, the voice is the voice of freedom. And one of the ways in which it's the voice of freedom is that it's the freedom from need. Right. So talk like you don't need this job. Talk like you don't need me to buy this. And I find that's really interesting in this position of doing sales over the phone. Right. And then we see after he accomplishes this, we see him making these calls and they're talking about everything but the product. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's doing everything but actually trying to hard sell this person. And it's this conversation all of a sudden. And at the end, it's like, oh, how do you want to handle this? Visa or Mm -hmm. MasterCard? Right. And then he moves on. <laughs> well, I think there's also something to be said about the fact that it's the older worker who tells him this. And this is a worker, and you get a sense he's been doing this job for a long time, mm. that he's known this knowledge about utilizing the white voice. But what I think I like about the character is he's not torn and drawn toward the extremes of ambition that Cassius is. Right? He seems to have found a niche within the job that he's very comfortable with, that he can be as successful as he wants to be without being driven by these internal compulsions or by management. Management isn't driving him, does just enough to survive and keep a little money in his pocket without being stressed. Yeah, and I do think that every single person who's ever had a job remembers that person, that (laughs) in the first few years or the first few months of that job was the person who came to you and was like, hey, this rule doesn't really matter, but this one really does hey, wear this, make sure you say hello to this person, you know, make sure that you're not late to this, you can totally skip this. I mean, I, I actually can remember the name of that person for me. It was actually Chuck McKinney, who was one of our guests <laughs> on this podcast, you know, that in the first few months of my job was like, okay, come over here, let me give you the, the lowdown. So. You don't have to read every essay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and this is a reference to one of our previous episodes. It's also like learning the hustle of the job. Mm. Yeah. Like, yeah. how do you hack the job? How do you find the back doors to the job that give you what you want without having to completely give the employer and maybe even the customer everything that they think they want? It's also probably, as a worker, your first entree into worker solidarity, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's us against them. You get the unofficial rule book. You know that what you're being told is something that we workers understand Against the upper management, against the, the administration, against the bosses. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I was a bank teller for a while and the, the woman who pulled me aside and said, you know that your Christmas bonus depends on sick days you haven't taken, right? And that was nowhere in the manual. Um, and, and in fact, when I asked the vice president, she's like, no, no, that's not how we work it. But in fact, it was how they worked it. <laughs> but can I just come back? I know, you know, I didn't want to make this just about the film, but we would be loath not to point out two things. One is Danny Glover is remarkable in that role. Right. But secondly, how the film plays on the trope of now I'm forgetting exactly what this is called, like the magical wise black man or um, something like that. The magical Negro. Yes. The magical Negro. And sort of like turns that on its head, really, which I thought was a a really great moment in the film. And just to go back to, I think Charles raised an interesting point about this, the scene when you do see him use the white voice and talk to the customer, they're talking about everything but 
selling the product. And I think this brings up an interesting sort of contradiction at the heart of emotional labor is that emotional labor is labor you perform and you're supposed to make it look like it's not labor at all. The waiter or the, the, the bartender, maybe we should mention bartenders on this show, who you know is friendly to you <laughs> and pours you that whiskey sour that you've been drinking for a while. <laughs> you want it to feel like, oh, they do this because they really like me. I, I mean, I know they have to be friendly to everyone, but... I'm a regular here and they're friendly to me because I tip them well and I'm a good person and so and so there's a strange sense in which emotional labor has to kind of efface itself in its very performance as appearing not to be a performance and I think it's shown in the scene when as Charles said when he's really making the sale they're talking about everything but what he's selling he's giving the guy like dating advice or, or you know what to do when he brings a woman back to his apartment I, I think that's one of those things that makes emotional labor very difficult for the people who do it and I think also kind of confusing for people in our society I mean we live in a society in which we are constantly confronted by people who are giving us the emotional cues of friendliness and so on but we never can really read them like in the sense of like are they doing this just for their job Right. It's a strange world that we live in where we do most of our sociality is often for a wage. If my initial question to you way back when was correct, namely that there's a way in which all labor has now become emotional labor because of this demand that you love your job and so on. And then when you add on those people who were doing what we typically used to call emotional labor, as you put it, now all of our relations are through this waged labor. And I really like that moment where you said, you know, I want them to like me for me. And you made a slip that I think you actually meant that wasn't a slip. Namely, you said, because I'm a good tipper. And then you said, no, I'm a good person. <laughs> and I'm wondering, in this relation, aren't those the same thing? Like, the only way for me to be a good person in this situation is to be a good tipper. You you better say yes, otherwise Romulus is going to spit in your next train. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's a certain sense in which in emotional labor, there's an alienation of the person performing the labor. And there's also an alienation in the person, to some extent, receiving it. Because I often feel like you're trapped in the sense, like, if I say to myself, like, I go into a restaurant and I'm like, I don't want to get in the, give these people a hard time. I just want to, like, you know, they're having a hard enough day. It looks packed in here. I don't want to make anyone's day worse. But there's very little you can do. You can, like, stack your plates. Uh, but there's very little you can do as a quote-unquote human interaction to help them with their day, the best you can do is give them a good tip and get out there quickly. There's a certain sense in which the very fact of social life, of connecting to another person, seeing their needs, trying to respond to them, is in some sense separated by the fact that it exists as a work and exists through the wage relation. Sometimes I find myself saying odd things to workers where I try to really say to them, like, have a good day. Like, what does that really mean to them, right? right? If, I, if I really say it, don't just performatively go through it, like, I hope you have a good day. It doesn't really, really mean anything to it. I mean, I think the alienation is obviously much stronger on the side of the worker, but I think on the side of the consumer of that labor, you're also alienated from the social interaction that it could be outside of that labor context. I think this idea of relating to other workers from the position of the consumer and not the position of a fellow worker mm -hmm. is a really important thing. And I know that you wrote this piece about what you called right workerism, mm -hmm. where one of the things that you suggested was that the 
the protests against the shutdowns in the last couple of years, in addition to probably being astroturf movements, were also not so much people wanting to go back to work, but people wanting to go back to consuming. Right. So the people who are protesting and demanding that the economy reopen are not workers wanting to go back to work. They're consumers wanting other workers to go back to work, even if that also means they have to go back. And sometimes what they want is the emotional labor. Because one of the other things that's happened since COVID is as workers who might usually be in a very sort of emotionally pleasing perspective of trying to help customers end up being the people who are tasked with telling people, hey, you got to wear a mask in here or you have to do this. I mean, the hostility that has been brought to these people who are just simply asking to be, in some sense, treated like human beings. Hey, there are people here. Hey, you walk in here without a mask or you don't respect social distancing guidelines, you're going to possibly get someone sick. And how much people did not want to hear that because what they wanted when they go into a place is they want to consume that emotional labor of someone smiling at them, never really being upset with them, never telling them what they what they, the, the server wants, but always responding to their needs. And as we've seen, when you break that, it really disrupts what people expect and they take it out, uh, unfortunately, on workers. And man, did the airline workers get the shit into that? They still yeah. are. Holy cow. <laughs> Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. We're there often to solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So, listeners, if you haven't seen this film and you don't want spoilers, now may be a good time to pause, go see the film, and then come back. But for those of you who have seen the film, we cannot have this discussion without talking about the main antagonism of the film, the character of the Equisapien. So, (laughs) (laughs) to be really honest, the film is an amazing blend of satire, anti-capital critique, comedy, and horror all together. But Jason, I want to hear your thoughts about this frightening creation yeah i mean it's always uh, the thing that everyone reacts to so we learn about this company called worry free and first we learn about worry free is that they're basically running almost slave labor you work for them you get work for life they house you they feed you they don't pay you anymore um in exchange for work yeah that's not almost slave labor that is slave labor, that's that's slave labor. <laughs> that would be the yes. exact definition of labor uh, he's labor. like well you work for them and they don't pay you but you get housing and food but it's almost like slave labor right because there's three hots in a cot on the plantation uh <laughs> Yeah. Yes, exactly. But it turns out that that's not the extent of what they're doing. They are also developing these human-horse hybrids referred to as equisaprians as the ideal sort of docile but also stronger, uh, more endurance worker. And what's interesting, I think, about the film is that not only do we see them, but when we see them 
Cassius is sort of invited or, or offered this possibility to become an Equisapien, but become their foe leader, right? The corporate CEO says he understands that they're going to need someone on the inside to maintain their antagonism and make sure that it's managed. And what I think is interesting is about the film is that at this point in the film, Cassius has already sold himself out, sold his friends out, but he's done that very subtly. No one ever said to him, hey, lose your friends and make money. It sort of happened bit by bit by bit. And I think one of the interesting things about the film is that it really tries to get us to think about how we accept bit by bit by bit a degradation of our living conditions and no one ever stops to think about it. Right? I saw a headline in the New York Times just the other day. It basically said, you're going to be working longer. It was like a headline for an article. You're going to be working longer. Here's how to manage that. And, and part of it was like, well, why are we going to be working long? Like, who decided we're going to be working longer, <laughs> right, less possible? Right. It's like these things, they... It's, there's like boiling frogs. Yeah, exactly. There's a boiling frog logic. <laughs> right. And I think that in the first part of the film, Cassius goes along with what happens. But then suddenly in the second part of the film, he's presented with it a stark choice. I think one of the, the interesting things about that is that the film really uses the what-the-hell moment with Equisapiens to get you to think about what you'd been accepting up until that point. Because up until that point, you'd kind of watch Cassius go up the corporate ladder, losing his friends, losing a sense of who he is, losing his own voice. And now he's being offered it again, but in such stark terms that, of course, he's going to say no. But not only is he going to say no, but you're going to find yourself wondering what he's been saying yes to all along. And so I think one of the things that the film is brilliant about using this very over-the-top surreal image, sort of sci-fi image, not only just show us a, a dark future, but to get us to recognize that we're in some sense already living in that dark future. That to some extent, the Equisapiens are already here and they are us because we have all accepted working longer, accepting worse conditions um, and protesting less. We just... It just happens so slowly that we, you know, look in the mirror and we don't recognize ourselves with our new horse face. We don't really remember how that happened. Right. What's interesting about that, Jason, is that up until that turn, which I think does, at least in my viewing, came as a surprise, but I think does force you back on the earlier, smaller moves that were leading up to this. And people have been saying cash is sold out, but the way all of that is presented to him is the way in which labor is always presented in capitalism, namely as free labor, quote unquote, we are all individual contractors and we should make the best contract we have. So the first move he makes in this process of selling out when he becomes a power caller one of the ways that they convince him to do this is by saying, you're not going to be down on this floor. They're not going to know about this. You're going to be upstairs. Mm. And so you're an independent contractor and you don't need to worry about worker solidarity anymore. And I find that that idea is what allows all of these saying yeses to build up to something like the Equisapien. The thing that I really loved about the Equisapien is that it was the first time, because let's be honest, this is a weird film. Just as a genre, it's weird. It's this weird blend of 
realism and fantasy. And, and it's titled Sorry to Bother You, which, of course, they're taking from a telemarketer script, you know, uh, Sorry to Bother You. But, you know, it gets increasingly bothersome as the film goes on. But exactly as Jason was just describing earlier, it does so in this kind of slowly turning up the heat, boiling frogs. And then it's as if Boots, Riley, said, okay, they don't know they're boiling. We got to right. shock them, mm-hmm. right? Like we need something shocking, horrifying to drop in here. I could almost see him in the editing room. You know, the, the you get that first shot of the Equisapiens and he'd be like, I told you you were going to be bothered. It's like, there will be blood. I told you there will be blood, right? Like, you know, uh, but it's the moment that I, I thought, wow, this this film is called Sorry to Bother You. <laughs> like this is it. Because <laughs> right. this is bothers the shit out of me. It's traumatizing. The introduction of the characters, it's its really traumatizing. The interesting thing, of course, you get the shock internal to the film. And then you get the scene where Cassius captures video of, of these Equisapiens on his phone. And he has this kind of almost like Soylent Green moment, right? He goes on television right. and tries right. to announce, you know, it's you know, they're Equisapiens. They're making monsters, which is a scene that happens in a lot of sci-fi films, right? Where you break the illusion. Here's what's happening. The Matrix, et cetera, et cetera. And the interesting thing, of course, is that it has the exact opposite effect that he wants. People, right. people, mm-hmm. the stock price goes up, and there's a great line that the the squeeze characters played by Stephen Yeun says about you know if people are presented with a problem and no way to solve it, they just get used to the problem, and that oh, yeah. to me is yeah. like the film's sort of thesis statement about the boiling frog situation, right? If you're presented with something, oh, we're gonna have to work more hours now with no solution to it. We just work more hours now. Oh, I'm gonna have to supplement my income and my regular job with driving an Uber or doing something else on the side. I guess that's what I'm gonna have to do, right? That is the logic that capital uses: is that the problem without a solution, just becomes something we get accustomed to. And we're very good. I mean, we're the real malleable thing here, not the genetic code that turns humans into half horses. We're really good at getting used to a lot of bad shit in terms of working longer hours and so on and so forth. And that's, to some extent, I think what the film is saying about how capital works. I completely agree with you. And I think that we have gotten so accustomed to seeing the worker alienated, exploited, exhausted, humiliated, depersonalized. And what this film does is say, but now let me force you to see the worker as grotesque. And that a kind of visceral, affective level, that's more than just a bother. Lee, is what you're saying, because I agree with this, is that that alienation, the conditions under which the worker has always been working, was always, in fact, grotesque. Right. Now let me show you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jason, how can we think about this film in lineage of other films that take on these questions of the role of work in our lives? I think the interesting thing about this film is it's not a simple work sucks kind of thing. There's a certain yeah. sense, as we right, said, right. there's an ambivalence about work that is brought into this film, that, that Cassius both gets a sense of purpose 
and a sense of his own abilities and what he's capable of doing from work as he also loses his friendships and loses a sense of who he is. That's one important aspect that I think differs from a lot of films out there like Office Space or whatever. But I also think the other thing, which is equally important, is that the film, in the end, and we were just talking about how if you're presented with something that's bad and no way of solving it, you get used to it. The film offers us a real idea of how do you change things, and you change things through collective action. I think one of the greatest one of the things I really love about this film is, to me, its real kind of pivotal turning point is the moment in the restaurant when Cassius goes to his friend Saul and squeeze and says, "Hey guys, I messed up. I realize I've been really screwing up. We need to come together and address this." And the film really underscores that it's not about like picking between a, a better or worse job. And this is, I think, where a lot of anti-work films go. Right at the end of, say, Office Space, for example, the guy leaves cubicle culture and ends up working construction. Hey, I'm outdoors. I'm getting exercise. This is so much better. This job isn't going to pursue me over the weekend when the when the day's done. I leave the job site. You know, these fantasies of a different kind of job that would solve the problem. And I think, sorry to bother is very clear. It's not a matter of this or that kind of job. It's a matter of how we situate ourselves with respect to work. Do we do so, as Rick was saying, as an individual who's told that what they're doing doesn't concern others? Or do we do this as a collective, as a we who understands that what happens to me is happening to other people and it's happening to me because I'm not connecting to other people? That's, I think, the film's real important point about work is that you change things not by finding a better job, you change things by collectively addressing the conditions of labor. Jason, I, I was struck in what you were saying. You have a blog post that brings Sorry to Bother You in a little bit of conversation with Office Space. And there you focus on a moment that I thought was one of the funniest and most poignant in Office Space, namely when Jennifer Aniston's character is reprimanded because she doesn't have enough, what do they call it? Um, flare. 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 <laughs> this sounds like people who've had to wear flare. Right. Or right. people who've seen the movie like 20 times. She says, no, but the manual says I have to have five pieces of flare. And the manager says, well, that's the problem. You only have five. And yeah. so <laughs> she can't just do her job. She also has to love it, which I think office space to a certain extent ends there. And like maybe the solution to that is get a different job, which, by the way, is the solution capitalist always says, if you don't like it, go get another job. Right. The flip side of that is and that will suck as bad as this one until the problem is solved. But then your other point there that follows that I found really interesting because there's a way in which once labor becomes service labor and once all labor becomes emotional labor, sometimes I feel like we act as if Marx's idea of the fetishism of commodities goes out the window. And the center of that has always struck me was the problem with that is that we relate to one another through things and not as people anymore. And I, I think what you're pointing out there is also that this denial of solidarity in work forces upon all of us this connection with one another, primarily through wage and wage labor. And any form of solidarity could only come in the form of, well, we all love our job, don't we? And yet real solidarity, I agree with you wholeheartedly, is what this film tries to bring to the table. 
Can I just say one complaint I have about this film, and it will not surprise you that it has something to do with robots? Fuck you, oil me. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're both right that the, the message at the end of this film is that change can only happen through worker solidarity. I worry, though, that the figure of the Equisapien complicates that a little bit for thinking about this in the 21st century because the worker solidarity is only with other human workers. It's not as if the movement for change is for anyone being exploited under these working conditions, under this capitalist system. And, you know, the equisapiens of our real world are going to be robots and they're going to be smart robots, right? They're going to be sapient robots. And so I do worry that this might be a little humanist in a way that makes me uncomfortable. We'll cross that diode when we get to it. That is the famous last (laughs) words of every extinct species. We'll cross that (laughs) asteroid when we get to it. (laughs) But, okay, so this might be something that, you know, at this point in the podcast is way too late. But The interesting thing, Lee, is that on the one hand, these days I'm thinking about what happened between the time, for example, when the book of Genesis says that work is a punishment and that the ideal human life would be one without work. And Kant, on the other hand, who begins saying that the problem with the South Sea Islanders is that everything is provided for them and they don't have to work and therefore their moral situation is fucked. You know, Aristotle says the the end of work is leisure, and we've lost that. The end of work now has become work. And my worry about the robots is not that we won't be in solidarity with them and so on, but that it's not going to liberate us from these very conditions that we've been talking about and that the movie has been pointing out, but that the fruits of robot labor will also be unequally distributed. Yeah, no, I think that all of that is true. I I think just going back to Jason's idea that the ideology of work that we have now has made work as a punishment also work as a reward, right? Mm. Work as a sort of satisfaction. So, for example, when do you feel rewarded or satisfied or accomplished in your work? When it's hard, when it's punishing, right? Like not when it's easy, not when you're just, when I'm sitting at the bar telling some drunkard next to me about Marx and they learn something. You could use my name, Lee. <laughs> some silly pole next sitting next to me right? Uh, about work. No, but the, the idea is that it feels like an accomplishment because it's punishing. And so, I I mean, I don't know how we haven't done this yet, but Jason does have a book coming out on work. And maybe we should pitch it back to you, Jason. You should definitely take a chance to plug your book. Bring us home. So many things. So I do think that one of the issues is that is this idea that something has happened to work and we both consider work to be an economic activity through which we produce things that we need and so on. But we also consider it to be, to use like the Hegel's terminology about an ethical activity, how we become worthwhile people. Yeah. And those two sides of the thing, which we constantly try to hold together, are increasingly being torn apart in a society which can automate and, and take care of more of the production of things, finds itself with these sort of disposable people who then tries to find new things for them to do to get their sense 
of purpose. And I do think that the real question, because a lot of people when they write about work, they want to talk about the value of time spent from work. And I think that's, of course, important. And being able to, to liberate, as Kathy Weeks talks about, a life from work. But I also think that the real pressing question is, how do we not just get more time for work, but how do we change the way we think about the stuff? Because there's still going to be stuff that needs to be done. How do we change the way we think about the stuff that needs to be done? And I do think that the film suggests that the first thing we need to think about in terms of our activity is think about it as a necessarily collective activity. And going back to what, what Lee was saying about the Equisapiens, one thing that I think is interesting about the figure of the Equisapiens, and they could be understood to be, they could be robots. I mean, I, th- I think of them as being the way in which the workers in our part of the world might relate to or think about the workers in the other part of the world who produce the products that we supposedly sell and we do the service sort of emotional labor for. But one thing I think yeah. is interesting about the scene in the film with the Equisapiens is there's a very kind of funny scene where the, the human characters meet with them for the first time and they talk to them like the way you talk to an alien in a sci-fi movie, like, hello, right. welcome to Earth. <laughs> and the Equisapien says, hey, man, I'm from East Oakland. You can just talk to me. But I think this, the real point is that we tend to think the differences around work, that like that people are engaged in very different types of activities and they have nothing in common and forgetting the fact that to some extent, Regardless of what your job is, what you do, whether you use your head or your hands, we are all in this situation of more and more is being expected of us and less and less is being given to us. And so the film, I think, tries to think that solidarity is founded upon a commonality. And that commonality is the commonality of exploitation, which even though it takes very different forms, and I might look at an Equisapien or I might look at someone who's doing a very different types of labor and say, I have nothing in common with this person that seems so radically different from me. The film is suggesting that we have to see that commonality or else, you know, if we think about it in the other way, the way of like what you're doing has nothing to do with what those other people are doing, then we will just find ourselves turning up the heat and not being able to know what to do other than just Get used to it. Well, it looks like someone's been taking our critiques of labor very seriously because Rami... (laughs) Rami just said, fuck you, pay me. (laughs) Right. No, fuck you, get out. (laughs) But first pay me. But first pay me. So we're going to thank our guest, Dr. Jason Reed, for spending a little time and having a few drinks with us. Any final thoughts before we take off? Thanks a lot for having me. This has been great. I mean, I listen to the show and I'm always trying to get my word in when I'm listening, but you guys don't seem to hear me. So I'm glad to be on the show when you actually seem to listen to me for once. Oh, you're the guy that's yelling at the speaker. Yes. (laughs) Well, we'd love to have you back anytime, Jason. This was a really great conversation. And I also want to tell everyone that Jason's work on film and philosophy is among my favorite works that are only on the internet. So I really want to point everyone to his blog. It's called unemployednegativity.com. Unemployednegativity.com. Thanks. And I will also then plug Jason's Twitter feed is outside of my friends and co-hosts, the only Twitter feed I follow, and it never makes me feel bad about myself. So um, he's one of the few draws for me to social media. Wow, thanks. All right, guys, it's been great. Yep. Thanks so much. Aluta continua. That's right. Struggle continues. Take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.